Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Pod. Today is Saturday, January 9th. Simon, this, this is our first weekend recording uh, in the history of this podcast, I think, by the way. So... Yeah, I think so. Unless we did it once in the very first episodes, but uh, if not, yeah, it would be our first or second one. Yeah. So we have the advantage that the market is closed today, and we can look back at a pretty hectic week. I mean, if this if this is what 2021 is going to look like, uh, 2020 was just the preview. Let's not uh, linger too much on this because, I mean, you you get news everywhere. Uh, obviously, Trump being banned from social media is pretty. Uh, that's 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 big news, uh, and and it shows. I, I ran a like a joke of a poll on my Twitter yesterday that just said this is before Twitter did the ban and Facebook was doing the ban, and I just said who's the most powerful person in the world, and it was just four different options for Mark Zuckerberg depending on how you wanted to spell his name, and it included all kinds of. Uh, nicknames like the Zuck. So this this is this is gonna make a lot of people mad. And I, I'm not gonna comment on if it's good or bad, but this is this is large corporations flexing their power right now. And it's a very interesting time. Uh, I'm just gonna leave it at that. It's a very interesting time and it's it's gonna be interesting to see how this shakes out. Yeah. I would not have liked to be in the, the shoes of Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey for Twitter. Um, probably not easy to, to make those decisions knowing that there's going to be backlash, whatever they do. Um, I think Dorsey was already, already getting a lot of flack with the um, the labeled tweets that he was doing for, for Trump. But this week, I guess, with the... Yeah, the incitement to violence that Trump did in those videos and his tweets. Um, I guess he didn't really leave them a lot of a lot of choice of making those decisions. I know Zuckerberg said that they'll re, um, I think, review the uh, decision after Trump is out of office. Uh, but we'll see whether it it just kind of continues then or not. Right. Yeah. It's. <laughs> It's wild stuff, but I mean, you're right. They, no matter what they do, people are going to be have their opinion one way or another. So that's just that's that's the state of what we're living in right now. So let's let's not talk too much about news because it, it is the weekend. But Simon, it is January 9th, and your bold predictions that were so beyond bold, they're almost true. Like, do, do you do you choose to call him, man? It's like uh, I'm giving you like the first the first period um, intermission interview, and I'm like, okay, you're already up ten nothing. Uh, what are you gonna do for the next two periods? Because it's looking more and more like you're gonna at least hit this one. I mean, come on, Tesla yeah. is getting out of control. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, uh, what is it at now? Like eight hundred and thirty-five billion, something like that. I'm just looking um, right here. It's eight, yeah, eight <laughs> eight hundred and thirty-four billion in market cap. 
Yeah, I mean, I and I went out of my way to uh, to make bold, like really bold predictions. Some that I I thought had little to no chance of happening. Um, and of course, Tesla is already uh, closing in on a trillion dollar market cap. And I've seen uh, I've seen interviews of analysts of people that are bullish and say that it'll keep going up. And the arguments are still they kind of still make me chuckle a little bit uh, but I'm not going to try to understand the stock like I said in the bold prediction so um, yeah maybe uh, my bold prediction will come true uh, in the first month um, it's weird huh? and it feels almost like it's been a year in in a week <laughs> honestly honestly yeah I'm looking here so Facebook is a 762 billion in market cap business right now so it, it is one trading day away from being a hundred billion bigger than Facebook. So um, do what you will with that that information. Um, but we've we've been. I, I I'm hesitant to say wrong because in a split second we could be right. Like in a very very split second we could be we could be right. Um, yeah, and which yeah, has made uh, Elon the the richest person in the world too. So he just passed uh, Jeff Bezos this week. Yeah, and so so that like so part of me looks at that and I go like, that's awesome. Like we we need we need someone like Elon solving problems, real world human problems, uh, to be very very powerful and and very successful. So part of me is like I'm a, I'm a huge Elon supporter, but I, I am th- this is this is what I'm telling people who ask me, because I get asked about Tesla all the time, obviously. I mean, everyone and their dog wants to know what's happening with this stock, obviously. And what I say to people is, if you've held this thing and you are crushing it, you know, don't don't sell winners and stuff like that. This, this is This is true because you've made a boatload of money on this and it's good to hold your winners if the thesis remains. Now, on the on the other side of that coin is if you are new to investing, and Tesla may have been one of the first stocks you picked up last year and caught in, you know, all the hype. It's not this easy, right? Like it's just not this easy. Making boatloads of money in the stock market is not this easy. So I just want that to be kind of well aware and and understand your portfolio. If you are super sensitive to a drawdown in a company that's very highly valued, like like a Tesla or or like any other company, if you are very exposed and a drawdown would absolutely crush you and you would er act irrationally, you need to diversify a little bit um, because, you know, this concentration of holdings has created you wealth, but the concentration of holdings can destroy wealth as well. So just be aware of that. It's not this easy. Like, so are you are you seeing this sentiment of making money in the stock market? It just seems a little too easy right now. And it, it worries me. And I'm a perma bull. Like, I am always optimistic. Long term, always optimistic. But it's a little eerie out there. It, that's just the feeling I'm getting. I'm, I'm curious about how you're feeling. 
Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people uh, unfortunately lost their jobs earlier in, uh, in 2020, and a lot of people had some side cash or in the U.S. They got stimulus checks in Canada. They may have got gotten the uh, SERB benefit as well and you have people that probably were able to put a bit of money in the stock market and may have picked up trading as a job and it's easy when you're just trading and you're trading on the way up but once things uh, start going down especially if you're using leverage um, it can be really dangerous so I think that there's a lot of people that have a false sense of security right now and um, yeah it could be dangerous for them who knows maybe it'll just keep going up in 2021 2022 but um, you may see a lot of panicked investor if we get a 20 30 percent drop like we did last year yeah that's right uh we'll see how it plays out if that happens i'll get my checkbook out okay so we're going to talk uh we're gonna have a little bit of a macro session here simon's going to give you a brief uh, lowdown on inflation and how how the gov actually calculates their fancy inflation number because there's lots of uh, lots of discussion around macro and currencies lately with the rise of crypto that we've seen. So, so I mean, you want to give us just a, a lowdown on inflation and and their imaginary CPI index. Yeah, so the uh, the CPI, so Consumer Price Index, uh, you'll see that that's the most common measure used by the government for calculating inflation. Um, so what is CPI? How does it impact you? Uh, well, CPI, I mean, I guess it's an okay measure to like measure the increase in prices, so the inflation for the economy as a whole. Um, the problem with that, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues with CPI and how it's not necessarily a not necessarily reflective of everyday life. So first of all, it measures the increase in prices based on a basket of good and services. Um, so that basket of good and services will have different weightings depending on if it is, for example, the food basket or services, or there's all different types of baskets that they do calculate. Housing as well um, does have a pretty high weighting. Um, it's released on a monthly basis. Um, it does not include everything. So that's really important because the government kind of decides what they include in that so it does not include things such as uh, the increase in assets and government expenditures and increase in assets that's really important because assets we're talking here about stocks and bonds and people may think okay well yeah well that's not my everyday spending well maybe not but at the same time assets i mean if we're seeing inflation go way and way up, well, it's not out of the realm of possibility that assets will keep going up as well. So we see these crazy multiples. Well, it's possible that this just stays constant because there's so much money being put in the economy right now. So that's that's something that is not captured by the CPI. And what's really important for you to know on an individual basis it may not represent true inflation. Well, it won't represent true inflation for you as an individual. So if you really want to see how your buying power is being eroded over time, you should really keep track of your budget and kind of look at it on a quarterly, monthly, yearly basis. Doesn't really matter. But just to see how, based on what you eat, based on your spending patterns, how much more it's costing you every month, every quarter, every year. So that will really give you a better indication of the, the true inflation for you and how 
the increase in goods really impact you on a day-to-day basis because one of the things calculated in the CPI is, you know, the price of airline tickets. Well, I don't know about you, Brayden, but I think a lot of people aren't traveling right now, so that's not really use, useful for, for them on an individual basis. Um, the CPI is used for uh, a lot of pensions are indexed, so they will be used to uh, increase the pension year over year. So that's one of the numbers they use. But again, if your pension is increased by 2% because of CPI increases by 2% based on the government calculation, but your personal expenses actually increase by 6 or 7%, well, I mean, what good is that 2% increase? You're still losing that, that purchasing power. And to me, it's one of the most important things to keep in mind when you're investing because the whole point of investing is making sure that you grow your wealth, but you increase your buying power over time, or at least don't lose it. And it really makes right now in the current environment, investing in things like bonds or government treasuries, um, not very attractive at all. Um, I wouldn't be surprised the next two, three, four, five years, as there's more money coming in the economy because of all these stimulus packages that, you know, inflation that of five to 10% may not be something that uh, is that far-fetched and that could really have big impacts uh, on everyone um, and I had to uh, remember that tweet uh, Brayden that I did I just kind of tweeted to see what people were uh, what their goals financial goals were for 2021 yeah that, remember that tweet I did that's yeah that's right like a, yeah yeah, a week or so ago. And one of the replies was really interesting and something I've been asking myself quite a bit is the the person I can't remember the exact name, but uh, whoever is listening, the person listening will know that uh, it's them. But building an emergency fund, but what he should be putting in terms of like where should he be putting his money in the emergency fund to at least get some time some type of return and that's a really good question because if you're looking at different savings account you'll probably only get one to two percent at best uh, probably not even two percent and so if you're saving a decent amount of money and let's say your true inflation, your personal inflation rate is 5% for the year, well, you're kind of, you're losing money, you're losing purchasing power. Your money will increase, obviously, because of the small interest rate, but the true purchasing power, which is the most important thing, will decrease. That's a, that's a really good question, and, and you bring up a good point, because I, the the spark note, or the, the one-liner for what you've described is the gov can pick and choose what gets put into the CPI and then they can meet their little 2% inflation quota and uh, that's great. But what's really happening is there's been a huge debasement of all of all countries, not just Canada. There's been this huge debasement, printing of dollars, and where's that money going? It's going into assets. So inflation looks a little different right now um, and it's a good point to bring up. And as for that question, it's a great question, by the way, is the way I look at an emergency fund is you are accepting that, you know, cash is trash in terms of receiving a return and you shouldn't be really looking to receive a return on your uh, your rainy day fund because that's what it is. It's a rainy day fund is when things go south if you lose a job, if, if if you need money quickly, that you do not have to sell your 
stocks or your other assets in inopportune times. So it can have a massive potential in terms of a return because say you needed that rainy day fund in March of of 2020. Now, you would have had to sell stocks at an inopportune time and you would have had to unnecessarily interrupt compounding, which you should never do. So the return, the inherent return on your rainy day fund, now if you think about it, is, is, is huge. It's massive because you didn't have to sell stocks at an inopportune time. And if, if you were awake for the last couple months, the stock market rallied in a major way and reached all-time highs. So the way I look at a rainy day fund is don't worry about you know the cash is trash. I get it. You're not getting a return on it. They're debasing the dollar like nuts, and you're like, I don't want to own this. The way I look at it is it's a rainy day fund, and, and it should be treated as such. Do you have anything to add to that, Simo? Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And ultimately, I mean, I'm not sure we have a perfect answer for that question, too, uh, because the money, like Braden said, it will keep getting devalued. But again, just that the fact that you're not forced to sell something if you need the money has a lot of value in itself. Um, something inflation as a whole, this is one of the big drivers behind the rise in Bitcoin. I know we uh, we talked about it uh, briefly, but a lot of people are using it as an inflation edge. And one last thing that I found really interesting about inflation, I've been reading a bit more on it recently, is the recent government stimulus, the true impacts on inflation may not be seen for a couple of years, because right now what's happening is a lot of people are in dire financial situations. So they're not necessarily spending that money, they're making sure that they're saving it more in case of a rainy day so when things do come back to normal um, it's very possible and a lot of people are speculating that there's going to be a big infusion in spending in the economy because then people will have that extra money saved up that they'll be ready to spend so inflation could really pick up in a couple years from now especially because a lot of people have payments that are being deferred right now so those payments, whether it's credit card payments, whether it's mortgage payments, these things will they'll have to be paid eventually. So there is a bit of yeah, there's a bit of discrepancy with the money being infused in the economy and how it's going to be spent. So we may not really see the true impacts of uh, all the, the stimulus money for a couple of years. And I'm not trying to debate whether it's good or bad. I know a lot of people are hurting and they need those funds, but uh, there may be some adverse side effects down the line. That's a great point because you know, I live in Toronto and I'm in an Ontario lockdown right now. Everything is closed can't do anything and all this injection of capital and all this printing it's going to be delayed in terms of consumers actually spending it and bidding up prices and injecting capital back into the economy until we're into some sort of sense of normal and over the pandemic so there's going to be this delay so that's a great point to bring up all right let's move on from macro stuff uh we could we could talk about macro all day, but I, I spend very, <laughs> yeah. very little time that whatever 10 minutes we just spent on macro is my entire quota for the whole year in terms of uh, worrying about that stuff. I'm going to talk about two 
really quick facts, like frequently asked questions that I get all the time, constantly from Canadian investors. And the first one is withholding tax. Now, we have talked about withholding tax all the time. Uh, We talked about withholding tax on several episodes of this podcast. Um, And we really refer most people to this BlackRock uh, guide that they made on withholding tax. So we can link that in the show notes, take a look at that. But the, the, the quick note on this is, and this is what most people have questions about is where should I hold us stocks? And I say, you should hold them in your RSP unless they don't pay a dividend or pay a small dividend. Your TFSA is fine. And the reason for that is they only collect their only implied withholding tax or subject to, that's the word I'm looking for, subject to withholding tax on the dividend. Withholding tax is a dividend tax. It's not a capital gains tax. So if you are holding foreign stocks like U.S. stocks in a TFSA, you are subject to withholding tax if they pay a dividend. And it is 15%. So if you hold foreign foreign stocks in your TFSA, it's not bad. Like, don't lose any sleepover. It's only 15% on the dividend, which will be a fraction of your total return. Like, very, very small on your total return because it's only 15% of just the dividend. So that's the important part. So don't lose any sleep over it. I mean, it's obviously if you're if you're holding a bank like a U.S. bank, say you own J.P. Morgan, yeah, probably hold that in RSP because you're getting you know four plus percent dividend yield. That those juicy dividend yielders hold those in your RSP. But if it's some fast growing tech stock that pays like a dividend that's not even worth talking about, or even Visa and Mastercard, like the dividends are so small. Uh, but growing very fast, you can hold them in your TFSA. Like it, it's it's totally fine. So that's uh, that's that's one piece. And then uh, another one I always get is are ETFs subject to it? Yes, they are, but you don't see it. So if you own a TSX listed ETF like VUN XUU. Uh, those are the the total market ones. I think VFV is the very common S&P 500 one that I see quite often. They own US stocks. So if you hold it in a TFSA, it is subject to withholding tax, but you won't see it because the fund deals with it. So say it pays a 1.5% dividend yield, this entire this massive index fund that might hold thousands of different US stocks. You are subject to the withholding tax, but the ETF will deal with it. So say it pays a 1.5% yield, you might actually get like a 1.4% yield. That's what, that's what it'll actually show on the prospectus as well. So that dividend yield you see on the entire fund on the prospectus, that's what you're going to get. You don't have to worry about withholding tax on top of that because they're already factoring that in there for you. So you don't see it. But just because you don't see it doesn't mean you're not paying for it. So that's something to consider. But again, let me just reiterate for people who are unfamiliar with withholding tax. It is just a tax on the 
dividend of foreign securities, just on the dividend. Once you understand that, it's a piece of cake. Uh, so that's, that's withholding tax in a nutshell. Uh, let's move on to another question that I get all the time, which is, what is free cash flow? We t- Simon, we, we should have like a drinking game of how many times we say free cash flow in a podcast, um, and we'd, uh, we'd have a good time. So there's many ways to calculate it, and you get to the, the same number. The one I look at it, the way I look at it is I start at the top of the income statement with net, sorry, at the top of the cash flow statement with net income, which by the way is the bottom of the income statement. So you see how these things connect? So the bottom of the income statement is net income and the top of the cash flow statement is net income. Now what free cash flow is trying to accomplish is account for all of the non-cash measures and get them out of there. And the reason for why that's important is there's all kinds of funky accounting that you can do to adjust net income. And free cash flow helps solve the problem of removing that. Like what we talked about with the real estate companies, net income is not a useful measure. Adjusted funds from operation, which is a cash measure, is very useful. Net income, not. So what it does is it adds back these charges like depreciation, amortization. It adjusts for interest expenses. They adjust for changes in the balance sheet uh, in terms of like current assets, which will tell you how much, like the change in cash on the balance sheet. They're going to, you know, uh, take away capex expenditures and that gives you back that free cash flow um and the the reason why that's important is capital expenditures matter like those things actually matter in terms of what it costs to run the business a, so a company that's capital light and has less capital expenditures is going to produce more free cash flow. So that's why people like tech businesses because the gross margins are incredible and they're capital light. That's like why a lot of people really like investing in tech. So that's why free cash flow is very important. It matters. Stratosphere, when you go on there, you do the company search and free cash flow is listed as Linum and you can graph it. So you don't have to calculate it on your like by yourself because not every single cash flow statement has cash flow, free cash flow written out as a line item, but it's very important and a lot of people have adjusted their models to change away from traditional earnings per share to free cash flow or free cash flow per share. So that's a real lowdown on it, but really what they're doing is they're taking net income and they're adjusting for these cash measures and then also with capital expenditures. We need to see that too. So that's that's free cash flow. Did I miss anything, Simon? Uh No, no, that's good. I mean, it's really, to me, it's a really good indicator um, to see how really the company is profitable. The income statement, don't get me wrong, is really important. There's a lot of a lot of good information there, but something too that uh, we you won't see that often, but you'll see fairly 
you know, once in a while is when a company has goodwill on the balance sheet and they want to write it off, they write it off as an expense on the income statement, but that has no bearing on the free cash flow. So that's why it can really skew the numbers. Um, and another one that you'll see, especially for tech businesses on the income statement is you'll see stock-based comp compensation, which may look may make a tech company look like it's not profitable but then when you look at the free cash flow they're really pumping free cash flow like you know hand over fist um, and that can definitely skew things obviously stock-based compensation is important because the more there is uh, the more you're diluted so you have to definitely keep that in mind uh, but those are just example and we've talked about I've ranted about REITs before where you should really not use uh, the income statement um, you should really be using funds from operation which is uh, slightly different than free cash flow but um, very similar in a lot of the ways because you're really looking at the money coming in and those non-cash items for REITs that are huge in terms of depreciation and amortization uh, but no aside from that I think that's a really good lowdown and it's still surprising to me that in those like CNBC headlines and all that they still talk about either sales or priced earnings or earnings I mean so that's still the this the metering right the earnings per share that's still in the headline so that's why it's important to dig more into businesses because those headlines can really be misleading yeah it's so true because if if, if you tell me a company is going to earn three dollars and 64 cents in earnings per share that means literally nothing to me you you are not able to extract any sort of conclusion from that information because you don't have any other numbers to tell you something like three dollars in earnings per share uh, that literally means nothing to me I, I need to know much more um so it's funny that you bring that up because i think we talked about that is like it doesn't matter on its own like i think that was one of your it, it doesn't matter yeah, on yeah, its exactly. own in a vacuum it's a completely useless metric all right to wrap this show up we have one more topic that i'm going to talk about which is called network effects. Now we talk about network effects all the time. People use the term network effects to describe a moat that a company has built. And so net, the net, network effects by definition is a phenomenon where the increased number, number of people or participants that use this business's service or products actually improve the value of the good or service. So the more users, the more people who use the service or buy the product actually improves the experience of that good or service because of network effects. So let me give you some really good examples. And I'm actually going to start with one that I never even wrote here on the show notes as I'm reading the definition. And that is Apple. The network effects of the product, like the hardware of the phone, Apple is like number one example. People buy Apple iPhones because they want the iMessage, because all their friends are on the iMessage. And if you're not on iMessage, you have to we you have to use a different means of communication in terms of like being in a group chat. You have to go use a Facebook product like WhatsApp or, or Messenger 
where if you're everyone's on the iPhone, then they can use the like the, the fancy blue bubbles. This is by design. This is Apple trying to create a network effect that if everyone's using our service, our not only hardware but also software offering, then everyone will be inside of our ecosystem. And Apple is type A in terms of executing network effects efficiently, both on a hardware and software side. So, you know, they're the leaders in this, right? That's why they're the yeah. biggest company in the world. Uh, yeah, and then one ahead. other thing about Apple too um, is the App Store, right? So the App Store has a huge network effect because businesses would not go and put their apps on there if there would not be, um, you know, billions of people using Apple products around the world would not make any sense. And it's also it's a good example as to why the Microsoft the Windows Phone never really worked is because um, you have. Google with their Android and then Apple with the iPhone that their ecosystems were already so strong that it was pretty much impossible for Microsoft to break through even with the financial resources that Microsoft uh, had um, I think when did they stop doing it like three four years oh, ago yeah. right I want to say I want to say 2016 yeah. that number is yeah, ringing a bell to there. me but mm -hmm. around there yeah that, that that didn't take off but it's because of network effects right yeah the, exactly yeah. that shows how powerful they are yeah it, it does and that that speaks to the moat that companies like apple have created is because the network effect and the first mover advantage being there creating that ecosystem makes it very hard to penetrate now my favorite network effects and you can tell by the allocation in terms of these companies being a massive part of my portfolio is Visa and MasterCard. I think this is the strongest network effect that we, we know of. And it is two-sided in nature because both merchants and consumers have to conform to this network effects. Both online and in physical brick-and-mortar retail, you have to be a part of this network effect. And the reason for that is everyone has a Visa or MasterCard in their wallet. So the merchants need to accept it. And you can't just come out with a new card because, well, who accepts it? And you can't just go to the merchants and say, hey, Simon, I got this new awesome tech. It's great. It, it runs on, on these rails. That's what people call the Visa and MasterCard. They call them the rails. It runs on these rails. And you say, but but Braden, no one takes, no one has that card on them, or no one, no one's signed up for that card. So who's gonna, who's gonna give me their money? So it's this two-sided network effect where if you don't have the card, no one takes it, and if you don't take it, no one's gonna have the card. And it's really, really powerful, and that's why Visa and Mastercard will continue to take market share of cash. And in my opinion, are the most impossible to disrupt uh, if we are still using fiat currencies. <laughs> if we are still using fiat currencies, I think it is the most impossible business to disrupt because the rails and the network effect, the infrastructure, it's too strong. It's a value chain uh, phenomenon, in my opinion, and that's why these these businesses are one in a kind and, and incredible. Uh, a couple other network, of, network effects I'll talk about really quick. Obviously, social media has 
the, the huge network effect is as there are more users, the service improves. If all your friends are on this service, then the service is better, right? Uh, Match Group, a company I've been talking about a little bit on here, you know, who wants to own Tinder in their in their portfolio? But hey, this is a pretty strong network effect, and they're the highest grossing app on the App Store. So maybe you want to add to your watch list. Very strong network effect. And then uh, we talked a little bit earlier, like Amazon. Obviously, the 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 merchants being on there to sell their stuff. If you want to find consumers, you you go there. But one that I think you own, you might still own is a network effect forming like Etsy. You know, that's that that is one in the making right now, right? Do you are you still holding that? Yeah, yeah, I still have Etsy and uh, the interesting thing about Etsy is a few years ago Amazon actually tried to get into the craft good markets and they've pretty much dropped that since then. So it shows you that how powerful Etsy was and how loyal their merchants but also their consumers are um, if you're able to fight off Amazon I think you'll be doing well in that in the future going forward yeah no kidding right that's been a really successful e-commerce play and they are they are moat making right now I mean it's not a small company what is it 30 40 billion in market cap um, I'd have to yeah around there. around there yeah. mm-hmm. so it's not a and it's really it's really easy to use too. You don't even need to create an account. You can buy as guests. You, um, I've used it for a few gifts uh, during the holidays too, and uh, I got my things. It took a bit more time shipping because I bought from the U.S. Although I was trying to buy uh, a bit more local, but that's one of the other thing that's so good with them is uh, you can have actually have the option to buy from your local area too. So yeah, yeah, I've I've used it too and and bought things from. Canadians and in, in BC and in, in Ontario and I like it man it's it's cool and people sell cool things and if you have a hobby and you want to sell these crafty goods where are you going you're going to Etsy so they're already creating a strong brand foothold but also developing one of these network effects that we've been talking about network effects is part of the stratosphere score I look at every company that's in the database and I evaluate if they have network effects. If they have network effects, they get extra points and that is a qualitative measure that goes into the stratosphere score. So if you haven't checked out what make up top picks um, and network effects is part of that, go to getstockmarket.com, G-E-T, stockmarket.com. It'll bring you right there. Trial is completely free. We will see you guys next week, guys. Uh, Stay safe out there. And by the way, if you are new to the stock market, it is not this easy. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.